Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today for our program, The Battle of Definitions, What is Antisemitism and Why Does Its Definition Matter? with Professor Joshua Shanes. Joshua Shanes is Associate Professor of Jewish Studies and Director of the Arnold Center for Israel Studies at the College of Charleston. He has published widely on modern Jewish politics, culture, and religion, as well as antisemitism and contemporary politics in academic and popular outlets, including Washington Post, Slate, Haaretz, and Tablet. He is currently writing a history of Jewish orthodoxy, and please welcome Professor Joshua Shanes. Thank you so much and good afternoon to everyone. Uh, I hope you're doing well today and I hope it is not too hot <laughs> in Arizona. I have to confess, I'm, I'm sort of happy to be further north at the moment, <laughs> although we have air conditioning on here too. So what I'm going to do, as I understand it, uh, our normal practice is to uh, for me to talk for a little while, uh, maybe 40 minutes or so, uh, and then for us to have more of a conversation, questions and answers. So I'm going to, I created a PowerPoint, so I'm going to share my screen now, and I should be able to figure it out after two and a half years of this situation. All right, share screen and share. Excellent. You all seeing my screen? Slideshow start. And Alex, it looks good, correct? You can all, I'm shared correctly? Yes. We have success. Excellent. Uh, so let me minimize this so you can see, well, we're going to see Alex, I guess. Um, let me see if I can hide this little bar somehow. Uh, nope, hang on. Should be a way to move this somewhere. Hmm, not there. Well, I think the bottom of the screen is the best we're gonna do. Okay, so what I'd like to do in the 30 or 40 minutes that I have is to give you essentially a four month crash course in antisemitism in about 30 minutes. Um, and just to give us a sense of, of where we're going, I'm going to go quickly from 2000 years to 200 years to 20 years, just to give us a sense of how this phenomenon has evolved, what we're talking about. And then we're going to lead up to our definitions. These are some of the images that I'm going to try to describe to you as we go through the next half an hour or so. And if I can get this to advance. There we go. So. We're going to identify the key myths of pre-modern and modern anti-Jewish hostility. The term anti-Semitism, which I'll explain in a, in a few minutes, is actually a modern term that refers to a modern phenomenon. It's sort of a misnomer to call uh, anti-Jewish animosity or hostility from hundreds of years ago to call that anti-Semitism. But such is life. We have, that's the term we're stuck with. So it's often called the whole thing is often called anti-Semitism. I want to think about its relationship to race and racism, especially in America because that is very, very important to understanding the phenomenon. And also it's very important to all of our conversations today in 2022. I want to think about its relationship to anti-Israel or anti-Zionist, or for that matter, Zionist discourse. Uh, and this will segue us into the main sort of conclusion, the main issue that's at the heart of the, of the, of the title of the talk, which is these competing definitions of anti-Semitism. And I'll give you a little background to who wrote them and when and why and, and why it matters. And we'll look at them as well. I'll put them up on my screen as well. 
Um, so please, I'll, I'll go through for half an hour. Please save your questions and get ready to throw them at me because I love hearing from you as much as possible. That's always the most interesting. So uh, Christian versus modern anti-Semitism. Modern anti-Semitism is something that is different, different than pre-modern hatred. The myths are different. The texts are different. Uh, and the nature of the phenomenon is different. When we're talking about pre-modern hatred of Jews, this is something that is almost entirely theological. It's going to be based on early Christian theological texts, whether it's uh, Christ killers or other medieval beliefs, which I'll show you now. And people are often surprised. This goes back to the very core of Christian texts. So, for example, here we have from the Gospel of John, and this is one of many, many, many examples I could give you uh, from the New Testament and from the early church fathers. Uh, this is Jesus being quoted by the Gospel of John. In very truth, I tell you, said Jesus, that everyone who commits a sin is a slave. Know that I know that you are descended from Abraham, but you are bent on killing me, Jesus, because my teaching makes no headway with you. I'm revealing in words what I saw in my father's presence, and you are revealing in action what you learned from your father. And they respond back to him, Abraham's our father. What are you talking about? The Jews say back to Jesus. And he says, well, if you were Abraham's children, you would do as Abraham did. As it is, you are bent on killing me, a man who told you the truth as I heard it from God. That's not how Abraham acted. You're doing your own father's work. Don't you understand my language? It's because my revelation is beyond your grasp. Your father is the devil. And you choose to carry out your father's desires. So here we have a core uh, uh, Christian text literally explicitly connecting Jews to the notion of belief uh, of coming from Satan. One of the most important things we have to understand about anti-Jewish animosity, both in its pre-modern Christian forms and in its modern secular forms, is the basic idea that Jews constitute a ontological unity, a oneness, which is at its core satanic and dangerous. This is a consistent theme we're going to see from the very beginning through today. This is the basic myth you want to look for of Jews. It's, it's something like, um, if any of you watch Star Trek The Next Generation, which I do and you all should because it's a wonderful show, which I've seen in its entirety several times, and there's a, the big villain of that show is a species called the Borg, uh, which is this sort of uh, uh, alien species that thinks as a single unison for the purpose of undermining and taking over and destroying the rest of the universe, the rest of the galaxy. That's how the Jews are. You have to understand them. So Jews across time and across geography are all the same being. And in this case, they're all satanic. And it doesn't matter uh, what year you live in or what place you live in. It's all one being, and you see it here already at its core. Here we have uh, John Chrysostom, right? He says explicitly, an early church father, for tell me, is not the dwelling place of demons a place of impiety? Even if no God statue stands there, what's the dwelling place of demons? A synagogue. He's describing synagogues. There may be no statue there, but it's a place of demons. Of demons. Here the slayers of Christ gather together, here the cross is driven out. Here God is blasphemed. Here the Father is ignored. The Son is outraged. Here the grace of the Spirit is rejected. Does not greater harm come from this place since the Jews themselves are demons, right? They're worse. They're more dangerous than pagans. 
In the pagan temple, the impiety is naked and obvious. It could, would not be easy to deceive a man of sound and prudent mind to entice him to go there. But in the synagogue, there are men who say they worship God and abhor idols, men who say they have prophets and pay them honor, but by their words, they make ready an abundance of bait to catch in their nets the simpler souls who are so foolish as to be caught off guard, right? This is a deceit which is more dangerous. They're cunning. That's also another myth we're going to see a lot. Jews are cunning in their deceit and their trap for lost, for potentially lost souls. Now, during the medieval period, this is going to radicalize for certain in, in certain ways and for specific reasons. Uh, above all, there, the basic notion that comes out of the early church fathers, uh, why don't we just kill all the Jews, right, if they're so terrible? And the reason uh, that's given by uh, St. Augustine is that, well, uh, why are Jews still around and why don't we kill them all? Because their miserable life underneath us is proof that we are the new chosen people, that we have uh, uh, superseded the Jews as the true Israel. And the Jews living in this terrible way, that is proof that God loves us better, but we are limited from killing them. Now, what happens in the Middle Ages, a lot of things happen, but one of them is that the Christians discover the Talmud. And when they discover the Talmud, they realize the Jews of today, i.e. 10th, 11th, 12th century, are not the same Jews as the Bible. They're living by this other book, doing these other things. And if they're not the same Jews then Augustine's pact doesn't work anymore. We don't have to leave them alive. We can kill them or ex certainly expel them. At the same time, there are new ideas of Christianity and they want to see Jews as proof of their own religion. So I'll give you a couple examples. Of course, you know, ritual murder, the idea that Jews kill Christians for their blood to use in ritual objects, especially matzah. This does not go away. There are ritual murder trials against Jews in the 19th and 20th centuries in Western Europe and even one in America itself. Uh, but the more interesting one to me is this one here on the left, which is the idea that Jews uh, desecrate the consecrated host. Around this time, the Catholic Church had decreed that the consecrated wafer of the Eucharist is the literal body of Christ, not the symbolic body of Christ, but the little body of Christ, and when you consume it in the in, as part of part of that ritual, you are creating what's known in Latin as unia mystica, or in Hebrew as dvekus. You are you are uniting with God through Christ. So, what is the idea of this accusation that Jews steal the consecrated wafer, not as an act of disrespect to Christians whom they hate, but actually to reenact the crucifixion of Christ? Because if you look in this image of Jews stabbing the host wafer, you can see drops of blood coming out of it. Now, obviously in real life, if a Jew who, I don't know, was feeling rambunctious and, and angry were to break into a church and steal the, the crackers after they had been consecrated to the body of Christ, and he stole them and brought them home and said, ha, 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 I'm gonna get back at those Christians. And he stabbed a, a, a wafer. If blood spurted out, your average person today would, would freak out and be saying to himself, oh my God, this is real. It really is the body of Christ. And he would run to the first church he could get to to convert to Christianity. But the point is, 
The Jews in this myth, the Jews know that it's real. The Jews know Christ is real. The Jews know Christ is the salvation, but they still reject him. Why? Because they are satanic, because they are the children of Satan. Here you have Jews roasting in hell, another medieval image. Here you have Jews uh, very much connected to pigs, the Sau Yuda, uh, which is a very, very famous image in Germany, especially Jews worshiping the pig, suckling at its teeth, uh, sucking its anus. That's also part of it as well, right? Completely connected. Here you have Jews again, sucking at the teeth of the pig, suck, licking its anus with the Satan, its Lord, uh, reigning above them. When we get to the modern period, the 19th century, we're dealing now with an entirely new phenomenon. And again, it's not out of nothing. It's not out of nowhere. It's not a coincidence that the despised other of Europe for all of those centuries becomes the despised other of this modern form of hatred. Nor is it a coincidence that Jews are still imagined as a kind of singular ontological being that threatens our society. But the way it manifests in secular Europe that no longer is necessarily believing in these Christian ideas, it's going to be different. Here we have now a prejudice versus an ideology, meaning to say a Christian in the 13th century may be prejudiced against a Jew when it comes to Jews. But in the modern world, anti-Semitism becomes an entire worldview. It's an ideology that defines the way the anti-Semite understands his entire life and world around him. That's quite different and new. It's not a mob uh, screaming, get the Jews, they're burning, they're, you know, they're poisoning our wells. It's the platform of modern mass politics, right? Because in the 19th century, you have the birth of universal first manhood suffrage and then universal suffrage for women as well. Universal manhood suffrage, universal suffrage means mass politics. It's not the politics of you know, the smoke-filled room of a few men deciding what's going to happen in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the parliament building. Rather, it's the politics of people who need slogans and flags and rallies and these sorts of things. And anti-Semitism becomes one of the platforms for some of those parties. It's a movement with a program. And it's not just about, or even primarily or at all, about Jews' disbelief. It's not that they reject Christ. It's at their heart there is an international Jewish conspiracy. And I'm going to show you some images in a minute that you'll see would never have existed before the modern period. And in many cases, it will be about race, not all cases. So for example, the, the famous German anti-Semite uh, Treitschke. So he's the one who, who coined the phrase, the Jews are our misfortune, which later becomes prominently displayed on the Nazi uh, anti-Semitic paper, um, uh, uh, the, um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm blinking all of a sudden, the Sturmer, the Sturmer, becomes Jews are a misfortune. He was actually not a racist. He believed that if a Jew accepted Christ, he was good to go. But many, or if not most, modern anti-Semites became obsessed with race. Race is by and large a modern phenomenon when it comes to anti-Semitism. There is one exception that I know of, at least to my knowledge, there was one exception, which some of you may know about as well, that in the 15th century in Spain, when Jews started converting to Christianity to avoid persecution, new Christians continued to be tainted with the idea of Jewish blood. To my knowledge, it's the only exception. Otherwise, the idea of Jews as a race is this modern phenomenon 
part of the modern era, era folk obsessed with race and race science, eugenics and Darwinism and so on. So now anti-Semitism is part of this worldview which sees the Jewish problem as they called it as the, being the heart of everything, the solution to everything. And it's not just hatred you know, going off into the atmosphere. It's directed towards specific political, social actions. And keep in mind, when anti-Semitism is born, modern anti-Semitism is born in Germany and Austria in the 1860s and 70s and spreads quickly to France. In fact, in some ways it's born in France, even earlier, certainly to England, obviously Russia. When this happens, in Western Europe at least, Jews are emancipated by now. Jews are equal citizens, at least on paper, if not in reality. That's the new reality. And there's all different kinds. You'll see some Christians still lingering around, some secular, some racist. So what do those images look like? Here are images that you simply would not find before the modern period. This very famous one, for example, that I'm circling, this is Rothschild, the famous Jewish banker of the 19th century. And here he is grasping with his reptilian hands Part of what you'll see often is Jews as reptile with reptilian hands. This is, from the, this is a very, very famous anti-Semitic image in the, ninth, the late 19th century, trying to conquer the world, right? Or here you have Jew as puppet master with these grotesque features uh, running. He's behind the scenes. He's the one controlling all of the prime ministers and kings and queens and so on. Uh, here you have the Jew as an animal uh, trying to conquer the globe. The Jew as snake. This is, of course, um, Dreyfus, right? The traitor. Who is, who, is, uh, who is finally taken down. Of course, we know he was totally innocent. And I wanna show you this picture here. See, I can move this, we can see a little better. This is a modern image, right? These are two leading, this is from Ben Garrison, who is a relatively normative right-wing political cartoonist in America, who is explicitly racist and anti-Semitic. And yet you still see his images all over the right-wing press, the normative right-wing press. So here we have the American political military leadership, they're being controlled as puppets by George Soros. As we'll see in a minute, George Soros has become the new Rothschild for many anti-Semites. He's the puppet master who controls the world through supernatural powers. But just in case you are concerned, you don't quite get it, here you have the Rothschild controlling him, right? It still goes back to the Rothschild, again, with the reptilian hand, right? So this is a direct connection we have from the Rothschilds in France and Germany 100, 150 years ago, to George Soros and still the Rothschild to this day. I'll show you some more images if I can get the slide. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, the famous text. It's, you know, people call a forgery. That's kind of a bizarre word to call a forgery because it claims to be um, the minutes of the meetings of the elders of Zion who are trying to conquer the world. To call it a forgery is to suggest that there was actually leaders of the elders of Zion who met, but this is not the minutes of that meeting, right? Of course, the entire notion that there's any leaders of Zion is itself already anti-Semitic, no matter what you claim they, they, they talked about at that meeting, because there is no such thing. But it assumes, again, this collectivity of Jews always represented by a single face, whether it's Rothschild or Soros or anyone else. And they're all trying the same thing, right? Trying to destroy the world, to keep it in their grasp. Here you have the image from France and here one from America. And many of you probably know it was spread in America 
by Ford. Henry Ford spread them in his newspaper from, from Michigan and in all the Ford dealerships. And it's very interesting to see what exactly the Jews are accused of in this document, right? It blames them for a wide variety of issues. Darwinism, Marxism, Nietzscheism, freedom of speech, destruction of aristocracy, teaching human rights or the mortality of kings, God forbid you teach that, confusing the people by allowing different opinions to be aired, universal suffrage, parliamentary politics, limitless ambitions, liberalism, freedom of the press and association, progress, theater and the arts, universal education, progressive taxation, and the gold standard. How can Jews be behind capitalism and communism and liberalism, every form of modern politics? Which is it? Are they the masses threatening to overthrow a government for a communist revolution, or are they the billionaire hedge fund manager? And the answer is, they're both, right? Because what all of these ideas have in common is modernity. Jews represent the threat or the perceived threat of change and modernity. That's what Jews represent. And when we have the birth of modern politics in Europe and later America in the late 1800s, anti-Semitism, political anti-Semitism becomes a part of it. But I want to make one point about this. Two famous scholars, one of them used to live, recently passed away here in Chicago, talk about the rise and fall of political anti-Semitism in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. That's when the term itself was coined, by the way, by an anti-Semite. He coined the term, a guy named Wilhelm Marr. One of the points made by one of these historians is, look, this was a flash in the pan. These political anti-Semitic parties, you know, they got a whole bunch of votes in the 1870s and 80s. But by the 1890s, when the economy turned around, those parties uh, lost most of their votes. They lost their, their heyday. And that's true. But one of the most important legacies of that period is the legitimization of the rhetoric. It became politically okay to talk about Jews in the way they talked about them, right? as the source of all of our ills, as the Jewish problem has to be addressed, Jews have to lose their rights to fix all of our problems or worse, right? That legitimization is incredibly important because a generation later in the 1920s and 30s, when you have the rise of a whole new wave of anti-Semitic parties of which the Nazis were only one of many, people didn't say, I can't, you can't talk that way, right? In other words, there's an expression by political scientists called, which some of you may know, it's called an Overton window. The Overton window is the range of, of ideas and rhetoric you are allowed to say without losing your credibility or ability to be in politics, right? So for example, um, 60, 70 years ago, a person could use the N-word and their career in, most, in much of the country, if not all the country, would be just fine. I think even in 2022, if somebody did that, they would lose. They they would, as Boris Johnson did today, they would lose their support from their own party and have to resign from politics. But as we've seen in the last five or six years, a lot of ideas, a lot of rhetoric, which just 10 years ago we thought was unfathomable. We thought if anyone spoke this way, they would for sure be dead politically. But now the window has stretched, and you can talk, you can say things. Uh, maybe not the N-word, but you can say a lot of things. A lot of hate-mongering is considered okay now 
that is, is actually success, is successful, uh, as I'll show you some examples in a minute. It's called an Overton window. So what happens in the 1870s, 80s, 90s is those parties never achieved long-lasting power, but they legitimize anti-Semitism, political anti-Semitism. And in the 20s and 30s, when the Nazis and other parties come around, nobody says what you're saying is unacceptable. They voted for them or they didn't vote for them, but nobody said you can't talk that way. In fact, we know that a lot of pe more people voted for Nazis, not because of the anti-Semitism, but despite it. Meaning to say they were fine with it, but that wasn't what got them to vote for a Nazi. Although there's also an old joke, what do you call a Nazi who didn't join the party because of anti-Semitism, but for other reasons? And the answer is a Nazi. It's an old joke, but some truth to it. Um, there is continuity with traditional Christian Jew hatred, right? Because after all, why the Jews? Why international conspiracy, you know, international ontological entity uh, connected to the satanic threat, right? All of these things are, is continuous. Uh, but anti-Semitism is a post-emancipation phenomenon. It's a part of the new mass politics. And it is a reaction to modernity, which means you have to first have modernity and modernization, then you can have the reaction to it. I want to make one quick comment about the Holocaust. Um, I'm, I should have given you a warning about the images. I'm sorry, but it, I, I don't like playing games with the Holocaust and, and, and I don't like hiding what it was. Uh, so I apologize if, I was, if, I'm, if this is traumatic for anyone. Um, it's not just anti-Semitism that makes the Holocaust. It's one other thing. It's the collapse of democracy. You need both. And they're separate. The rise of fascism and the collapse of democracy, the rise, and not necessarily fascism, any form of authority, other non-fascist authoritarian governments rose in Europe, which were just as deadly. The rise of authoritarianism combined with anti-Semitism is what makes the Holocaust possible. And these are separate phenomena. So for example, when I teach modern Jewish history, I teach these as separate intertwined phenomena, right? You, and both Jews rely on fighting anti-Semitism, but also on supporting democracy. The collapse of democracy is what doomed them as much as the anti-Semitism itself. But that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. What about America? Now, in America, Jews are not the classic other in the same sense, right? In America, it's been about race. And race, of course, we know is constructed. Why skin color and not hair color, et cetera, right? It's a whole thing. It's a whole other conversation. But for whatever, it's constructed, fine. But in America, it's been about this notion of race far more than religion. Jews are not necessarily the classic other against whom the, we understand what it means to be American. Be American uh, means for a lot of Americans to be Protestant or Christian, but it also above all means to be white. Uh, and Jews overwhelmingly from almost day one benefited from the fact, and again, I, I'm setting aside that there are of course Jews of color today in America, I think estimates are that maybe 10% of Jews in America are Jews of color. So leaving that aside, the vast majority of Jews are white or white presenting, approved as white. And that's not just a social statement. It's a legal statement. America is a fundamental, encoded race into its legal code, right? I'm not just talking slavery. I'm talking laws against miscegenation and laws in segregation, which water fountain you're supposed to use and all these sorts of things, right? Jews overwhelmingly from day one have been understood to be white. There are exceptions. And I brought these images to you to show you, right? So here's this anti-Semitic book uh, about Hebrew jokes and look at the Jew in it. It's a blend of a grotesque anti-Semitic stereotype 
with a grotesque racist stereotype, right? And in this, the Jew is sort of black. And by the way, sort of not human at the same time because blacks were seen that way. Uh, we know that lynching has been something that Jews uh, dealt with at least once, right? Which was the famous case of Leo Frank, uh, as I've shown you here. But lynchings was not something Jews overwhelmingly dealt with for most of their history in the way that African-Americans for a century after slavery had, to, not to mention slavery itself, obviously, but had to deal with lynching as a constant threat to their life and as something used to keep them in their place, knowing it could happen at any time. That was not something Jews dealt with. Likewise, there was a period of time that Jews were considered their whiteness was questioned, especially, I would say, from the 1880s and 90s to the 1940s or so. That's a half century or so. And you'll have swimming pools uh, that will not let Jews come, country clubs. There certainly were glass ceilings at some firms. Universities that used to be open to Jews closed, had, you know, developed quotas against Jews for half a century or more. This is all real. Neighborhoods also, there were covenant clauses that wouldn't tell the Jews. These are all real. And I don't for a second want to suggest that the impact of these things was not traumatic and important on many Jews' lives. But obviously, if you know anything about the history of the African-American experience, you know, there's no comparison to the African-American experience, not even close, right? It was that Jews for half a century were slipping into this potentially a you not fully white category as opposed to actually being black, right? That's, that's the point I'm trying to get at. Um, and it really basically ends after World War II. You have this notion of Jews. Once there's a famous book by Will Herberg, some of you might know, Protestant Catholic Jew. By the way, not Muslim, Protestant Catholic Jew. We're all American and really above all, we're all white. That was the point, right? Or you might know the famous case of the four um, uh, uh, clergymen who drowned in a Navy ship during the war, two ministers, one priest and a Jew. And the idea was, look, all these four ministers went down with their crew, died together for America, for whiteness and so on. That was sort of the idea that comes out of this. So that being the case, if Jews went through this 50 years where America sort of questioned, are they really white? We're not sure. Okay, yes, they are. So how do we get to Charlottesville, right? How do we get to uh, the uh, neo-Nazi Confederate white nationalist rally uh, in Charlottesville? Theoretically, was there to um, protest the removal of a statue to Robert E. Lee, but was actually a tiki torch parade in which these uh, white nationalists screamed, Jews will not replace us. I mean, how many Jews are coming to America? What are they talking about? Jews will not replace us. But the point is you have to go back to the original image of the Jew as puppet master, demonic international conspiracy, right? And as nefariously clever, not stupid. Go back to the book of John, right? The gospel of John. Jews are nefariously clever, and the basic theory, and by the way, this goes back a long ways. Hitler talked about this. I mean, this is not new. The idea is that minority people of color, African-Americans, Latinos, in their mind are not intelligent enough to undermine whiteness in America to replace white people. They need someone who is nefariously 
uh, smart that can orchestrate this replacement. It's called replacement theory. And this is completely normative. I mean, I talked about the Overton window. In my own adult years, I've seen this become totally normative in America. The idea of replacement theology, right? Replacement political philosophy, that whites are being replaced. And it's all about the Jews. The Jews are the ones doing it, right? So this is why when you have to have an image, you're gonna have George Soros. And I'll show you more about that in a moment. But George Soros, as the puppet master, controlling the media, he's behind it, right? So for example, remember this image here of the puppet master, which is a Nazi image in the middle here, the Nazi image to this one, right? It's the big, powerful billionaire Jew as puppet master who controls everything, right? And this is totally normative. I picked the biggest names I could find, which at the time of my building this PowerPoint was Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Rudy Giuliani, right? Uh, this is totally normative, absolutely totally normative. In Rudy Giuliani's case, he adds he must be the Antichrist. So we have this fascinating mixture of modern anti-Semitism, puppet master, nefarious puppet master, combined with the Christian, you know, antichrist, right? We'll see more of that in a minute. Um, uh, of course, you knew I would have to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? The globalist cabal, globalism, that's the notion of the Jews, the globalist cabal. That's a word that comes straight out of the protocols of elders of Zion. The globalist cabal, or Laura Lorgan, right? Who, Laura Logan, who's behind Darwinism? Remember the remember this one, this image here of of the of of the protocols of the elders of Zion. Darwinism was my number one thing that they're blaming the Jews for. Darwinism. Who's behind Darwinism? Look it up. It's the Rothschilds. Well, I did look it up. <laughs> it's a, I don't even know how to look it up. It's such a ridiculous anti-Semitic idea, right? Here we have this image again of of, of Soros, and above him the Rothschilds. Here again is Soros. He's behind the Democrats. He's behind everything, lawless and chaos, right? This is from, by the way, Fox News. It's, this is not from, I don't know, Alex uh, Jones or something, right? This is normative stuff. Um, shockingly so, but that's the new reality. Uh, the same has come with Zelensky. I've written about this, right? Zelensky, of course, most people think the guy's kind of pretty impressive hero, unless you're, I guess, pro-Russian, um, but he's also Jewish. And that makes him problematic. So whether it's Candace Owens saying he's working with the globalists, Zelensky, what the hell? How is Zelensky part of a globalist conspiracy? There's only one reason. It's because he's Jewish, right? And Wendy Rogers, who's a, uh, a state senator uh, in, uh, in your neck of the woods, supported by your governor, right? Uh, I stand with the Christians worldwide, not the global bankers shoving godlessness and degeneracy. Who is that? Zelensky is a globalist puppet for Soros and the Clintons. What the hell? But it makes sense. I understand this completely because this is part of what makes the anti-Semitic worldview. And by the way, just so you shouldn't think I'm, uh, I'm not taking a global perspective, Iran does the exact same thing here in this text. And by the way, no, I do not read Persian, but I did ask a scholar of Iran to confirm that this is what it says. So I, it does say that that Zelensky is a Jewish follower of the hedonistic school influenced by Jeffrey Epstein, George Soros, and other rich Jews. Same idea, right? Same thing right there. Hang on one second, we're getting near the end. Robert Bowers, 
who uh, murdered all the Jews at the Pittsburgh synagogue. Why did he kill these Jews? Because they were supporting Hayas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. They were being run by George Soros for weeks before the attack on Pittsburgh. It was a constant refrain uh, before it was before the election, a constant refrain of George Soros is bringing these uh, immigrants from Mexico and from Central America. Why am I killing these, these, these you know, people in the synagogue in Pittsburgh if it's George Soros? Well, what's the difference? It's the Borg. You can kill the mother of the Borg or you can kill any individual Borg. They're all the same. They're all, you, I'm weakening this ontological being of the Jews. That's the point, right? That's why he did it. Now, what about, uh, sorry, there is a chat. Make sure, the uh, Daily Storm just endorsing it. Yeah, okay, I'm not surprised. The, today's Daily Stormer, obviously, not directly connected to the one of the Nazis. In fact, Julia Streicher, the editor of the Nazi Daily Stormer, was one of the only people to actually be hanged at Nuremberg. Um, he was so anti-Semitic. I'm told by a teacher of mine when I studied the Holocaust in grad school, uh, he was so anti-Semitic that I'm told Hitler said of him, he was a sick anti-Semite. You really ought to live your life that Adolf Hitler doesn't think you're too anti-Semitic. I'm just gonna say that. In any event, what about Zionism and anti-Zionism? Now, this is incredibly contentious. Now, as I'll show you in a couple minutes, this is really what the IRA and, J and Jerusalem de uh, definitions are all arguing about. Sometimes anti-Semitism does appear as anti-Israel or anti-Zionist language, but you have to be careful. How do I know? And the language that everyone always says, which I, I think is pointless and useless, is, you know, uh, fair criticism or legitimate criticism of Israel. Well, what does that mean, legitimate criticism of Israel? Well, how do I know what's legitimate and what's not? It's just a vague sentence, right? So I'm going to tell you what it means. It's not, this is not, you know, it's, I'm, I only have a moment, so it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a general rule, but it will help you. If you see a notion of a Jewish global collective led by a bogeyman, whether it's Soros or, or Adelson, by the way, or Israel, and that bogeyman is acting nefariously to subvert the world, then you have anti-Semitism. Or equally, if Jews, because they are Jews, are held responsible for what Israel does, or expected to take a stand, like you're at a uh, university and some Jewish student's running for government, and they say, well, what do you think about Israel? Your name's Goldstein, you have to take a position on Israel. No, I don't. That's anti-Semitism, right? Because both of those things assume this collective connection. That's anti-Semitism. Put it differently. If someone is speaking about Israel or Zionism or the Zionists, and you could un take out Israel and plug in Rothschild, and the sentence still works, bravo, you have anti-Semitism. In contrast, if you are criticizing the state for things that states do, even if you're wrong, even if you're biased, that doesn't necessarily mean you're anti-Semitic. You can criticize Israel for anything, even things you're wrong about. You might just be wrong. It doesn't make it anti-Semitic unless you accuse Israel. I'll show you examples of this in a moment of being part of this global conspiracy. Having said that, um, it seems to me, I tell my students when I give these talks to, to colleges, to be sensitive because Zionism for most American Jews today is not actually about Israel. I'm sorry, but it isn't. Zionism is a form of Jewish pride, a form of Jewishness, almost like a denomination of Judaism, right? 
Meaning to say, when people argue about Israel-Palestine in America, nine times out of 10, neither side actually knows anything about Israel or Palestine. What they're actually arguing is identity, right? And I think people need to be aware of that when they talk, what, what are we talking about here? We're we talking about your identity? Are we talking about what a state, you know, a state in the United Nations is actually doing? That's the difference. And equally, the other way around, right? People should remember that Zionism, as much as it's a point of pride and identity for Jews, it might mean something very different for Palestinians or their supporters. And they should be aware of that in both conversations. So that's, that's my sort of caveat. So what's my example? So I'll give you, let me advance the slide. Here we have two examples. One is from the Soviet Union um, and one is from Iran. The Soviet Union no longer with us. It's, this is in the 60s, the Iran one is quite recent. Here we have what is theoretically they call anti-Zionist or anti-Israel. It is 100% clearly anti-Semitic, right? You have a dehumanized Jew, or in this case, Jewish state. Keep in mind, whenever a politician or leader or newspaper or anybody describes human beings as some other species, especially an insect, you are on a slippery slope to an abyss of genocide. There's nothing, right? When we have an infestation of bugs in our house, I call it the exterminator, as do all of you probably, unless you're, you know, some of you maybe are hippies from whatever, but I call an exterminator. I can't live with these things in my house. When you see human beings portrayed this way, that is anti-Semitism. This is not anti-Zionism. I don't even think you, I don't even like the expression crossing the line. This doesn't cross the line. This is a completely different phenomenon than anti-Israel or anti-Zionism. It's not the same thing at all. It's, it's pretending to be, but it's not. That's the distinction because we see the dehumanization and we see the global conspiracy, the key factors, right? By the way, it can come from the Zionist side too. Take someone like John Hagee. John Hagee is a huge close friend of many Israeli government leaders and many rabbis, but he promotes anti-Semitic core myths, right? He has warned of an international plot led by the Rothschilds to undermine American sovereignty through controlling international markets. That's anti-Semitic. I mean, textbook, right? He's described Hitler as a hunter sent by God to kill Jews. He described the Antichrist as a half-Jew homosexual. These are anti-Semitic ideas from the side of Zionism. So my, my sense is, as a scholar of anti-Semitism and of Zionism for that matter, which I've written a book on, is just trying to separate these ideologies that your Zionist or anti-Zionist ideas may say nothing about your actual views to Jews and your actual promotion of anti-Semitic myths. Or for example, Viktor Orban, the authoritarian dictator of Hungary, uh, who gave this speech at one time, we must fight against an opponent which is different from us. Their faces are not visible, uh, but are hidden from view. They fight not directly, but by stealth, not honorable, but unprincipled, not national, but international. They don't believe in work, but speculate with money. No homeland, but feel the whole world is theirs. Not generous, but vengeful, always attack at the heart, right? Especially if it's the Hungarian national colors. This is, I mean, oh my God, text every anti-Semitic myth stuffed into one sentence. Unbelievable, right? And yet he is very close he claims he's very close to Israel, supports the Israeli right, and so on, right? So it can come from the Zionist side as well. Finally, we come to the two declarations. So I have only a few minutes before questions, and let me put it to you this way. About 10, 15 years ago, a man named Ken Stern was asked to develop a definition of anti-Semitism, which could be used for data collection in Europe especially. 
And he developed a definition that was broad and general that people could use to see maybe this is anti-Semitic. Let's gather the biggest possible amount of data. What happened was, and it was called the work, the inter, the IRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Association, um, uh, working definition of anti-Semitism, which I will show you now. I happen to have it right here. Here it is. Alliance, I'm sorry, not association, alliance, forgive me, I mistyped. Um, and what happened over time was that this definition became sort of sacrosanct for many people, governments, and political forces. It's very vague, right? It's a certain perception of Jews, which may or may not be hatred towards Jews. What does that mean exactly, right? Well, some of these things are quite useful and clearly anti-Semitic, calling for aiding or justifying the killing or harming of Jews in the name of a radical ideology. Well, that seems pretty anti-Semitic, right? Demonizing Jews, accusing Jews as being responsible for uh, collectively for what one Jew does, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can all look this up and I encourage you to just Google IRA, anti-Semitism, you'll find it in five seconds with Google. There are a couple aspects though. What we're gonna see in a second, I'm gonna ruin this, the, the, the conclusion for you. We all know what anti-Semitism is. Everybody who's a scholar knows what it is. Nothing, I, virtually nothing I just said to you is controversial in the slightest. The only place people disagree is about Zionism in Israel. And so these definitions come out and they're used almost exclusively about that because everything else people get. It's all about Israel and Zionism. And there are three aspects of this definition that got some other scholars concerned. And I'll show you what they are. Uh, by the way, Ken Stern is himself controversial now. Although he was the principal author of the text, he was opposed to its codification into law. He didn't like it. He, he's a huge advocate of free speech and a huge advocate of, of, of academic freedom. He wants the college campus to have every view. And he was very concerned when, his, when this definition became used uh, in legislation and executive orders to suppress speech. So he himself has his own controversial story. If you Google Ken Stern, you'll find some of his articles, the articles against him. I, I always encourage everyone to do their own research in that regard and read all the stuff and decide for yourselves. There are three aspects of the text that some scholars were, first of all, scholars were concerned that this is a little bit too vague. What does that mean exactly? But there are three aspects of the Israel Zionism stuff they were concerned about. One of them uh, was this, uh, denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination. Well, what does that mean exactly and in what context? Many Jews, for example, are not national. Zionism 100 years ago was, not an old, was, was a minority movement. And even today, there are lots of Jews who view themselves as being only religion. So what does that mean exactly? Are, they, are, are the Satmar Jews anti-Semitic? Are liberal anti-Zionist Jews anti-Semitic because their, their Judaism is based differently? That's a question that seems problematic, right? Uh, likewise, saying the state of Israel is racist. Well, there are racist aspects of Israel. Is it the essence of Israel? I don't think so necessarily. Most of you probably don't. But to call that anti-Semitic struck some people as needing more clarification. And then the last one is double standards because the problem with double standards is that we all have double standards, right? When, when the United States became a massive, um, led a massive movement against apartheid South Africa in the 1980s, there were other crimes in the world that were far worse. But South Africa caught our attention for re reasons that were quite personal and otherwise. Uh, in the 70s, why did we pass the Jackson-Vanik Amendment to, uh, to pressure the Soviet Union to let the Jews go? Weren't there other populations more oppressed? Yeah, but for political and other reasons, that was the one that struck our fancy. And so we tried to help the Soviet Jews. 
People have lots of reasons. And because it's so elastic, essentially what double standards means for those who are concerned about this is that essentially any substantial criticism of Israel becomes quite difficult because why aren't you criticizing the Chinese for the Uyghurs, right? That sort of thing. So as a result of that, uh, a number of other scholars wrote this competing definition, uh, the Jerusalem Declaration. The funny thing about it is they write in this declaration, we didn't want to do this. Definitions are really problematic because no matter how you write it, you leave some things out and you include things that shouldn't be in there, but we're stuck. And they wrote that they want to clarify what anti-Semitism is and especially speak to the issue of Zionism, not because Zionism is the most important thing. It's not, especially in America, it's not. One could argue in Europe is different, uh, but especially in America, it's not. Uh, but that's where the argument is, right? Even if it's not the most important thing. And it has its own definition. And if you look at the two of them together, and I encourage you to do so, you'll see almost complete compatibility. They're really quite similar. I think you'll find the Jerusalem Declaration is more specific. It goes through some of the ideas that I just discussed in my last half an hour uh, or 40 minutes, a little bit more detail. But essentially, it's completely compatible. The difference is when it comes to Zionism, right? So here they say these things are, on the face of it, anti-Semitic, which the Ira would agree with, right? Holding all Jews responsible for Israel, calling Israel the way they used to call Rothschild, uh, denying the right of Jews in Israel to exist, right? In accordance with the principle of equality. In other words, they're saying, if you say only non-Jews or only Palestinians can live in, in Israel-Palestine, Jews, Jews have to leave, that is anti-Semitic. But to say Jews have to live there with equality, meaning to say, to say, I want to see equality between the river and the sea, I want everyone to have equality, that is not anti-Semitic. And that's a key difference between the two texts. Uh, and one other major difference I'll point out uh, is supporting one state or two states, they don't care, it doesn't matter, neither one have any connection to anti-Semitism. And most, uh, I would say most um, controversially is number 14, that boy economic boycott, if it's just economic, is not anti-Semitic. Um, that is one of the biggest things I would say divides the two definitions, is that IRA doesn't say it explicitly, but strongly implies that economic boycott of Israel is anti-Semitic, whereas the Jerusalem Declaration does not. I would keep talking, but we are, uh, it's already um, by my time, 52. So I'm gonna stop now and open the floor to questions. Thank you so much, Professor Shames. That was very, very interesting. Um, and, and as you mentioned, we'd love to take a couple questions. Um, feel free to unmute or raise your hand, whatever people are comfortable with. Don't be shy. I know I speak quickly, I apologize. I'll, I'll promise to answer more slowly. <laughs> it's all the caffeine I drink. <laughs> Sorry, hi. Yeah. Hi. Okay. All right, so I was just um, kind of wondering just off the top of my head um, about we're having this problem in, you know, just across the board in the country right now about what you can say and what books are teaching brainwashing children and stuff like that and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a history teacher, so I listen to it all day long. So anyway, the, I just wanted to, what do we do? What's your take on it, especially when we're talking about anti-Semitism? 
Um, I think you teach students, well, first of all, I think you have to talk about um, the relationship of anti-Semitism and racism and how they work together because, first of all, because they do work together. We saw that with Charlottesville and in America writ large, but also because it lets people personalize it and understand it, right? Uh, they, people get discrimination. They get the idea of demonization. So mm-hmm. I think it's very important, both from a factual perspective of how it operates in politics and mm-hmm. from a teaching perspective of getting people to understand it. I think you talk about um, the mythology of anti-Semitism, right? The idea that Jews are all one collective, which you see also with other demonized minorities. People are not a collective. They're individuals. You, you fight that. Mm-hmm. I think you fight the idea of um, what it means, talk about what it means to be an American. And it's nothing to do with these sorts of things, right? People mm-hmm. have notions of standard and other. Reminds me of, um, in uh, what was that show in the 70s, the famous one uh, uh, with uh, Archie Bunker, All in the Family. Oh, yeah, yeah. But when he used to say, there were two guys named uh, Elmo. There was regular Elmo and black Elmo. And mm-hmm. it was a running joke, right? It was Elmo and black Elmo because Elmo was the regular Elmo because he was white. And then black Elmo was, was black. He was not regular. So that mm-hmm. notion of regularity, I think, needs to be combated. Um, and I think you need to focus on that mythology, the mythology of a nefarious collective. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that that's how it pops up. And including the idea of it being personified in some sort of famous person, whether it is George Soros uh, or Israel or any other sort of easy target, I mm-hmm. think it needs to be identified in that way. And to learn the language, you know, globalist cabal, that is anti-Semitism 101. And it doesn't mean you have to police speech per se, although mm-hmm. we do police speech, don't we? I mean, for God's sake, if a kid used the N-word, wouldn't we police that and say, that is not okay? So I think we do police speech to a certain extent, but it's not about policing speech per se. It's about explaining what people are evoking with language. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's how I try to do it anyway. Uh, and we should, be vi- we should be very careful showing examples. I mm-hmm. used to show a movie, there's a, a, an amazing Nazi movie called Yud Sus. Mm-hmm which is available on YouTube, um, which is a feature film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a perversion of an actual historical incident about a, about a court Jew who was um, the brains behind a certain Duke, and then the Duke died, and, the, and then he was hanged. Um, and they pervert it in lots of ways. But in that 90-minute movie, they mm-hmm. jam so much anti-Semitism. I mm-hmm. thought, what an amazing movie. I'll show it to my students and ask them to identify all the anti-Semitism in it. The problem was, number one, it was traumatizing to Jews. And number two, it was convincing people to be anti-Semitic. Like it, was having the, it was having the effect the Nazis wanted, not what I wanted. So you have to be, I think, very careful with that kind of imagery. I've been um, there. I've been, called, um, I've been called every name in the book. I've had threats. I've been stalked even because I don't sugarcoat it. So I, when you just said that, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have so been there. Yeah, I, so I think <laughs> some caution is in order. Right. I like to use, if you, if you have a high school kids, and certainly college oh, kids. Most of mine in college, yeah. Uh, in college, even better. I like to use the, the movie Black Klansman. Um, it's very effective. Yeah. And the reason why I like it is because Spike Lee made a really interesting choice. In real life, the white right. cop in that movie was not Jewish. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, he made him Jewish. And they have this whole thing about skin in the game, you know, them being united against this threat. It's a very mm-hmm. interesting dynamic that Spike Lee puts in there. And I found it very effective for my students, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And not, trauma- not traumatizing. 
when they okay when i saw the whole thing about um you know banning mouse i think i just like i i just completely lost my mind at that point i couldn't take it anymore but yeah i i totally yeah, banning mouse I don't, I, is, is insane banning mouse is insane I, but yeah it's just insane mouse is such a powerful and effective right. tool for teaching yeah exactly. um i mean it's just insane it's so good it's so useful and also for me as a teacher for you as a teacher there is so much scholarship about it, which I can read to help me teach mm-hmm. it. I mean, what a great tool. Um, I wouldn't want, teaching is hard enough. Why would we want to shoot ourselves in the leg and not, and not use every tool at our disposal? I used Leo Frank as an example, you know, and that, that was a perfect, like, like, I mean, not perfect, you know, but I mean, it was an example that really, really drove it home. And just said, I, I think Leo Frank's very powerful, but I think it needs to be contextualized mm-hmm. as unique. Mm-hmm. as opposed to the experience of lynching that African-Americans dealt with for a century, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that contrast is important uh, to keep in mind. By the way, I've written about um, the, um, uh, the Tulsa uh, massacre. Uh, yeah. we, just, we just had the century anniversary of that. Mm-hmm. And I try to use that to explain pogroms because that was a pogrom. Right. In every sense of the word, that was a pogrom. And there have been many other pogroms against African-Americans in America. There have never been pogroms against Jews, really. Uh, but there have been against African-Americans, like Tulsa most famously, perhaps, or Chicago mm-hmm. 1919. Um, and that also is quite, I think, useful for students to understand um, both phenomena, right. both America and, and oh, yes. Russia, and for that matter, the Holocaust itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sorry. I, I talk so much. I could go on all day. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, or, and I, I could as well, but Michael just unmuted himself. Does he want to... Hey, oh, you're fading it out. There you go, oh, Michael. There you go. How yeah, are you? I, I do have something I've been thinking about. And we, we, we focus, of course, on anti-Semitism. But I wonder, having older than, than you and so many others, I think back to, to the uh, 60s and 70s, and we discussed that, that, this, that the U.S. was dominated by a WASP perspective, wide Anglo-Saxon. Protestants. And if we're seeing right now, what we've seen, you know, yes, there's been a lot of um, anti-Semitism, but there's anti-Asian, there's there's resentment against the Hispanic, and that's a tried and true American tradition. You can think about the anti-Italian, you can think about the anti-Irish in, in, in previous generations, but what is unique about anti-Semitism versus you know, it has since Obama was elected and the Trump legitimized the white Anglo-Saxon element that basically you don't hear about anymore. It's it, they're the ones that in some ways have been left behind. And do, do are we better looking at the wider context of hate in this country? Obviously, we have to look at anti-Semitism, but I'm wondering about this wider context. Well, I think you're right. There are differences. I mean, there, there really isn't an anti-Italian movement in America today the way there's anti-Semitism, right? And, and there, oh, there, there was a hundred years ago. Uh, for sure there was, but it went away. Uh, there isn't an anti-Irish uh, uh, sentiment the way there was a hundred years ago, right? Uh, uh, Civil War. What I'm talking about is this is tradition U.S. going back in our history that the yes. most recent immigrant groups. Well, I, I think the key is that relationship of Jews as this as the puppet masters who are aiding these racial minorities to undermine <coughs> white Protestant privilege. 
right? That's the idea. And that's the role anti-Semitism plays in this whole idea. Um, and, you know, again, it combines in really interesting ways with Zionism and anti-Zionism, because sometimes you'll see um, sort of anti-Zionist anti-Semitism in that sense, right? Um, like, like those images I showed you from Iran, Soviet Union, and I could find American versions of them too. But you'll sometimes find Zionist ones, right? In other words, the idea that Jews aren't really American. Jews are actually belong in Israel. And we'll support Israel because we hate the Muslims there even more, but you should be there because you're not really, you're, you're sort of a guest here, right? Um, this comes, out, it, it, this comes out in certain key ways. Like when Trump used to say to American Jews, you're a prime minister, referring to Netanyahu. And there were American Jews, but it was their prime minister, right? But Jews sometimes give this image themselves, right? You know, that Israel is what matters to them the most, you know, as a voting block. Is there, I, is I it, think is the there Jews, a unique difference in that from some of the anti-Asian right now? They're seen as other. We see the violence. Yes, it, the, it is Asian. different, but not. I wouldn't say it's worse, though. Uh, I wouldn't say it's worse. It's different. Um, I mean, there's no question that on an individual level, to be a person who is visibly of color has more consequences for your day-to-day -day life in America than to be a white Jew. There's no question about that in so many ways, both in terms of walking on the street today, your subjectivity to the police, uh, other sorts of discrimination, and also the legacy of the past, right? Um, my grandparents got a, got a mortgage to buy a house and built middle-class wealth in a way that most African-Americans could not in the 40s and 50s, right? So there's still legacies of that. And certainly even today. So yes, it is very, very different. I am not afraid for my life at all when I'm stopped by the police, for example. Um, just, I could go on and on and on and on and on. But at the same time, anti-Semitism today is worse than it's been in my lifetime, without a doubt. Uh, there is, my synagogue um, has an armed guard as most synagogues do today. And that used to be something we only saw in Europe. And my first time in Europe was 1993 after college. And I saw every synagogue had an armed guard and they grilled me. By the way, they were always Israeli. And they grilled me about who I was and why I was there. They often asked me what was my bar mitzvah por Torah portion. They, 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 anything to make sure I was actually there for the right reasons, right? And I thought this is so screwed up. And that's the reality in America now, right? So there's no question that there's a threat we have to deal with. I just want to put it, number one, in context. And number two, to emphasize your point, Michael, it's connected to a broader racial, uh, racist problem, right? A, a racist worldview that is very concerning. And as you stated, normalized. Um, I mean, it couldn't be more normalized. It just, it just couldn't be more normalized. It's, it's, it's all over the place. Um, and that's really concerning. I think Jews would be wise to think about um, political candidates who reject this worldview. Uh, who reject this this worldview in, in all of its sense. Um, that's my own view, but what can I say? Thank of course, we, of course, we don't have that much political power, so only a small number of people. Uh, hopefully our allies are, are part of that also, but I think that's why alliances are so important with other, you know, uh, threatened minorities, uh, whoever they may be. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Shainson. Thank you, everyone, for your questions. I'm sorry we're kind of out of time here that we won't have uh, time to answer anymore. But thank you so much uh, all for joining us. And I just want to let everybody know about our next program, which will be on July 13th at 1 p.m. Pacific. Uh, that will be 
Corona Exegesis, Political Cartoons, Jewish Holidays, and Israeli Society uh, with Dr. Matt Reingold. I uh, also want to thank our co-host for today's event, Temple Solel. Um, and again, thank you, Professor Shanes, and, and all of you for joining us today. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.